It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 7. Awesome. Great to be back here this Sunday morning with you guys. I had, um, we were blessed last week as uh, we had Mikey Sanchez teaching us. Just after we had a few weddings, I had a wedding and then Mike had a, a wedding that he also was attending on Saturday. And on Sunday morning, he taught a, about Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. And it, just, it was fitting and I, I've um, been blessed. I, I've been getting ministered to by the, by the Lord as we, we got to go away on our honeymoon for a week and... Um, experiencing his joy up there in Mammoth. And it was awesome. It was beautiful. And on top of that, praying for you guys here um, and asking God to give his vision, give us wisdom for when we would return. And uh, I know I've shared this with you guys before, but uh, I'm going to say it again. On Wednesday nights, we're not going to be doing the online stream anymore because I'm going to be going down to Glendora and uh, preparing the the church, uh, the unit over there that we've, just recently obtained. So keep us in prayer for that. And uh, we're excited. We're excited for what the Lord's going to do. And we want to remember that the the foundation of this church is the teaching of the word. So in the process, I'm continuing the gospel of Luke this morning. So in Luke chapter 7, this is where we left off um, several weeks ago, beginning with verse 36. I want to read to you guys this portion of scripture. It says in verse 36, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, him being Jesus. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. And there was a certain creditor, who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, 
you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and has, not, and has wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a beautiful account of Jesus interacting with a sinner, offering forgiveness to this woman. I titled my study today, Jesus Offers Forgiveness. And as I'm looking at the whole text, I'm reminded that Luke is writing this, documenting this down. And it's unlike any other gospel because no other gospel writer mentions this particular portion of scripture. There are other gospel writers who write of situations which were very similar to this, which we're going to look at in John's gospel. When Mary also anoints the feet of Jesus in a different situation. But I, I love how Luke was attention, attentive to detail. He would get interviews from, from Mary and various people and try to get as much evidence of the account that took place. And that's why so many times in Luke's gospel, we have accounts that are not in any of the other three gospels. And so I love how Luke as a doctor was good at note-taking. And it encourages me to be a note-taker, to write down thoughts, what the Lord has been speaking to me, write down prayers, things that have happened in my life. May we be practicing that as we come to church, ready to hear from the word, hear from the Lord, so we can write those lessons down and it helps us remember what we learned in service that morning or that evening. But let's look again at verse 36. It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Now, it, it says, Then one of the Pharisees, meaning after the account of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist was going through, what we read about a few weeks ago. But it's referring to this Pharisee, this Pharisee who asked Jesus to come dine with him. Now, previously, the last time we saw the Pharisees, if you guys remember, the very last time it mentions even the word Pharisees, it says that they were rejecting God, rejecting Jesus. So that was the last time we saw the Pharisees. And here, 
This Pharisee, rather than rejecting God and Jesus outright, invites him to eat with him. And Jesus goes in to eat with the Pharisee. Now, I don't know if you guys know that in Eastern culture, when they would sit down to eat with one another, oftentimes reclining, they didn't have tables back then, they would sit down and have the food there, maybe on some platform or on the floor, but they would have pillows around them. They would recline and eat. So if you see the Last Supper and, and Jesus at the table and everyone on one side of the table, which is kind of weird, uh, that's probably not how they had the Last Supper. They probably were sitting down close to the ground, reclined and, and relaxed. And as they would break this bread with one another, they believed that the molecules that made that bread and those beverages, and as they were eating all the, the, the soup and the hummus, I don't know if they had hummus, but the Mediterranean food, they believed that those molecules, and they shared, they weren't afraid of COVID at that time, they broke this bread, they passed it around, and people were, germs wasn't a big deal back then, but they believed that the food that was one was now becoming part of each other. So they were becoming one. And they have this word for it. It was koinonia in the Greek, which is our same word for fellowship and the same word for communion. When you look up the word fellowship in the, as you find it in the New Testament, it's the word koinonia. When you see the word communion in the New Testament, it's the word koinonia. It's that, the, that fellowship that, and it means to be at one with one another. So now as Jesus is entering into this koinonia, this communion with this Pharisee, we look at the characters that, that are in this picture. A leader in the religious world is asking to dine with him a man who did not fit in with the religious leaders of that time. And then we also see Jesus, the God-man, going into the house of a man who was part of the same group that Jesus referred to as vipers and whitewashed tombs with dead bones. So Jesus and this Pharisee could seemingly be on opposite ends of the spectrum. And I'm reminded that sometimes God calls us to share tables, share food with outsiders, even those whom we would consider at times to be enemies. You remember in the Psalms, David would say that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. But know this about Jesus. His motives were always selfless love for others. We have those people in our life that we cannot stand. We have those people in our life and Jesus calls us to love them. They are outsiders. They're outcasts and sometimes we want to write them off and not deal with them. But Jesus here is giving us an example of breaking bread with them, loving them, having fellowship with them. And then in verse 37, it says, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, 
brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So now the next character comes into our scene, this woman. The word used for sinner, which she is called. The literal meaning is that she is someone devoted to sin. In all likelihood, this word was used for prostitutes. And this sinful woman, when she hears that Jesus is at this Pharisee's house, she goes to him. And she takes with her an alabaster flask. I'm thinking of this scene as this, this woman knows at this point who Jesus is. She had to have at least heard of who Jesus was for her to now be in this state where she is leaving her life of immorality and running to Jesus. And she takes with her this alabaster flask. This was precious to her. The alabaster flask was a significant item in their culture. You see, in their culture, in those times when a young woman reached the age of availability for marriage, her family would purchase this alabaster flask or an alabaster box. It was this white stone that was beautiful and precious. And this, a family would purchase this alabaster flask and fill it with precious ointment. And they would cover the top hole with this wax so that this flask would only be used for one thing. And it was usually close to a year's wage for that family. So depending on how wealthy the family was, was depending upon how nice the alabaster flask would be and how big it would be, what kind of ointment they would put in it. But it was usually close to a year's wage. And this flask, it would be part of her dowry, of what she would give to her husband. And when a young man would come to ask for this woman's hand in marriage, she would respond by taking the alabaster flask and breaking it at his feet. This gesture of anointing showed this man honor. So now, this flask that would be saved for her marriage, which at this point in time, this sinful woman has probably not even thinking of marriage in her life, probably living a lifestyle of sin, probably far from marriage. But she now takes that alabaster flask, runs to Jesus, and she breaks it at his feet. She begins to weep at his feet. She is weeping as she has these emotions that perhaps you guys have ever felt. That moment where you come close to the Lord and you are aware of his goodness and it moves you to tears, tears of joy. And there's even a a, a sorrow sometimes in your own unworthiness. But the Lord is lifting you up in that moment. Sometimes 
you'll be driving and you'll have the worship music on and then the Holy Spirit just comes upon you and you just feel that emotion flowing through you. I remember the first time I ever heard a worship song as a believer by myself. It was after I first got saved and I was driving, driving home to my parents to tell them of, of what was happening, what was taking place in my life. And I, I put on some worship music. I'm trying to think of the song right now. But I just remember it, it, it impacted me so much in that moment. And I, I was reduced to tears. And that was the Lord just working in my heart, working in my life. That's what this woman is feeling. And with these tears that are running down her face, she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her very hair. Now again, another cultural reference to what's happening in the scene is for her to be using her hair on Jesus' feet. That was a big deal back then. See, women would actually cover their hair and would remove it for their husband, the, the covering, the veil. So for her to remove this now, she's laying aside culture, putting aside tradition to worship her Lord, to have that worship service. She's saying, look, I had this saved for my husband, this flask. I had this saved for my future of what I had in this life. But I was living a life of sin and now I want to forsake all of that, all of the plans for my life and devote myself for what you want for me, Jesus. That's what she's saying. And then she begins to kiss and cling onto his feet and it's this repeated type of kissing as she anoints his feet with that oil. The anointing is so symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Why was Jesus being anointed? Why was Jesus anointed? And we see it through the word. There's a point in scripture where Jesus plainly says why the spirit of the Lord has anointed him. In Luke's gospel, chapter four, if you want to turn a few pages back. Uh, Jesus he quotes one of the prophets to reveal his own anointing from the Lord. It says in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the, to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is why Jesus was anointed. And as I read his anointing, meaning set apart, meaning chosen for a specific thing to do, I look at all the ways that Jesus ministers to us through his anointing. We have been given the good news 
We are poor in spirit at times. Some of us are literally poor at times. The gospel came to us for the, because we are that. Jesus was sent to heal the brokenhearted. When we feel that our, our hearts are, are heavy, they're broken, they're weighed down, Jesus was sent to us for that. He was anointed for that purpose, to heal us in our brokenness. When we feel that we are sometimes bound, restricted at, at the end of a spear of one the enemy surrounds us. Jesus says that he has proclaimed liberty to the captives. When we feel lost and we don't know what to do, Jesus brings recovery of sight to the blind. And that's also literal in the sense of are we struggling physically? Jesus will heal us. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed, those who feel, again, that, that binding, that oppression, that darkness. Jesus is the light to bring us freedom and all these things. This is why Jesus was an anointed and brought into our life. This is why this woman is anointing the feet of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is using her in this moment, is guiding her to fulfill his will. This sinful woman is now serving and worshiping the Lord. This same type of account, it's repeated actually. It happens again, but in a different situation with a different person in the Gospel of John. Why don't you turn to John chapter 12 and we're going to look at the first eight verses of a scenario where again, Jesus is receiving worship from a woman In John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. In verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So in this scene now that John records for us, again, these characters, Martha, Lazarus, Mary, and Jesus in this place. And what do we see? We see Martha, she's busy serving, which is a good thing. And it's 
right in its t- season. And Lazarus, he's sitting there with Jesus, communing with him, having that communion, that oneness with Jesus. But Mary is worshiping Jesus. In another gospel, Mary is the one who is commended for her worship. When Martha is saying to Jesus, Jesus, why don't you tell my sister to help me cook and clean right now? We're trying to set things up. And Jesus tells Martha, 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 you're worried about many things. But what Mary is doing, that is right. And no one's going to take that from her. You see, worship is responding to who Jesus is. Worship is responding to what God is, who God is. God says, I am holy. And we cry back, you are holy. God says, I am worthy. And we sing to him, you are worthy. God says, I am good. And we shout out, you are good. That's what worship is. Giving God back to him what he deserves. The the worship part of our, our service, we are benefited from it. It prepares our heart to hear the word. But the worship itself, it's not for us. We don't sing so that we can be entertained. We sing to the Lord because he is the Lord. Mary, in this portion of scripture in John 12 that we just read, she is broken before the Lord. There's a theologian named Charles Spurgeon who writes, is it not a curious thing that whenever God means to make a man great, he always first breaks him in pieces? And this is true. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, there's a verse that says, the Holy One says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. You see, throughout scripture, we constantly see this cycle of a a man who thinks he's got it. And then the Lord just breaks him down like Moses, thinking he was going to save the Israelites in his own strength. And he failed at it. And then when he's humbled and sent out into the desert, there God builds him up and prepares him to lead the Exodus, the children of Israel out of Egypt. In our life, are, are you being broken? I wonder if the Lord's preparing you for his calling in your life now. It doesn't matter how old, how young you are, what you've done in the past. God has a plan for your life today. In that portion of scripture we just read in John's gospel, as this woman Mary is just anointing the feet of Jesus, she has attackers against her. That's Judas. Rather than worshiping Jesus, he's more concerned about the cost at the spikenard of the oil. Saying, wait, you could use this spikenard oil on something better. 
but Judas was self-seeking. He was stealing money. And in our lives, sometimes we can use ministry to be self-seeking. We can use the church. We can use God for our own selfish gain. But this must not be in our heart and in our minds. We must follow the Lord because he calls us and because he's worthy of it. Not for our own gain. Jesus, he commended the woman in Matthew 26, verse 13. In another gospel, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This act of worship. If you will go back now to the gospel of Luke. In chapter 7, that's where we were at. Beginning again with verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see the Pharisee here is judging and condemning the woman. And this is a sin too of judgment that we can easily fall into in our lives. Somebody, again, rubs us the the wrong way when we come into church and we're just like, come on, get it right. Figure it out. In Romans chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but there's a verse that says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? See, we often think that in order for a a person to get close to the Lord, for them to be saved, that they need to go through the worst trials in their life. And that's how the Lord's going to get them. But the Bible also teaches us that it's the goodness of God that brings a man to repentance. So can God use trials? Absolutely. Does he often? Yes. But he can also use goodness in a person's life. And when you pray for a blessing in, in a sinner's life, what you're truly praying for is that blessing that God br- brings them in through trial, through, through blessing. Now, n- the idea now with judgment as believers, oftentimes you'll hear somebody say, hey, don't judge me, brother. The Bible says not to judge. The Bible speaks about righteous judgment, about judging righteously and judging with someone with the same measure with which we judge ourselves. There is a correct purpose for judgment as Christians that we must follow. It's in Galatians chapter 6. It tells us this. The purpose of judgment or correction is always for restoration 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, restoration has to be the goal when it comes to having judgment. You can't just judge someone and hope that they go to hell. You have to judge and hope that they turn to the Lord and love them in it. And in that verse in Galatians, it talks about considering yourself lest you be tempted. And I'm reminded that if I, if I stand here before you guys, preaching on, on purity, on holiness, on righteousness, and then I go out and live unholy ways, I need to consider myself lest I fall into that same trap, that same temptation. In verse 40, back in Luke's gospel, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Now right here, this is a point in scripture where Jesus is shown exercising a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom. Because he knew what the Pharisee was thinking. In verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. See, Jesus is looking at this whole scene. He sees this woman who is worshiping him. And then he sees the Pharisee who is judging this sinful woman. And knowing now the truth, he speaks wisdom. And he gives them this parable. And I love the parables that Jesus gives, especially when he explains the parables. Sometimes Christians will debate over what a parable means. But Jesus in this one tells us the meaning clearly. In verse 47, he says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. This is the whole point of our story. You see, we see Simon, who was a leader of his religion, someone who should have known the heart of God. Yet he was a poor show of hospitality to Jesus. 
This woman was taking care of Jesus's needs of just worshiping him. And Simon, usually they would possibly have a, a servant there to wipe the feet of Jesus or of the guests that would come in. He would often be greeted with a kiss, a guest. A guest oftentimes too would even be anointed with fragrant oil, but Jesus received none of this from this Pharisee, from this leader of the religion. And I'm reminded in all this account that those who are forgiven much, love much. How much have you guys been forgiven of? Think of all your life. How much has Jesus removed completely the sin, the guilt, the shame? There's other parables that Jesus gives in relation to this that I love. See, this woman was was broken. But she was loved by Jesus, worshiping Jesus, letting go of her earthly possessions. Do you guys remember the the parable of the unforgiving servant? Jesus explains that in the kingdom of heaven, it's like this. There was a king who had these two debtors to himself. And one of them owed him like $100,000, let's say. And so when he came to him and said, hey, it's time for you to pay or I'm going to put you in in jail. He said, oh, please just have patience with me. I I, I promise I'm going to give you the money. And that king said, okay, fine. You know what? He he saw the anguish in the man's life. Say, hey, you know what? Forget about it. You don't even have to pay me back. I'm going to let you free of your debt. And that guy goes out and is like, oh, I don't have to pay that anymore. And then he, as he's walking through town, sees a man who owes him like $10. And he goes to that man and he says, hey, hey, you owe me money. Give me my money now. And the guy's like, oh, dude, I, I don't have it right now. And he's like, that's it. He calls the police. He's like, this guy owes me money. Put him in jail until he pays me back. And the guy's begging with him. Like, I, I promise I'll beg you back. And he's like, nah, like, I need it now. And so he puts that man in jail. And then the servants of the king hear of this matter. So they go to the king and they say, hey, remember that guy you just let off the hook with like $100,000? Well, he put some other guy in jail for having like a $10 bill. And the king then goes to that man, the unjust servant, and says, hey, didn't I forgive you of this huge amount of money? And the guy's like, well, yeah, thank you. He's like, why didn't you do that, show that same type of grace to this person who only owed you a little bit? For what you've done, now you're going to be thrown in jail. The other guy's going to go out free and you're going to be tormented in darkness. There's even a verse that Jesus says that if you do not forgive, that he will not forgive you. So take that how you may. But forgiveness needs to be in our life. 
You see, in our lives, we have people who have harmed us, who have wronged us. Yet we should still forgive them. We want all the grace. We want all the mercy and forgiveness in our own life when it comes to us and God. Please, God, just be merciful, gracious to me. Like, help me to just get through this life and, and succeed. But then when it comes to other, God, send them to hell. And we have no grace for other people at times. But there needs to be that forgiveness in our life. Jesus offers us forgiveness. We should offer forgiveness to others. There's also the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not going to go too much into it. But you guys remember his brother who was jealous when the son who was prodigal returned to the father and was being blessed. They were throwing a party for him. There's that the brother who was saying, hey, God, father, I was here the whole time. I was serving you. But now this guy who was off living in prodigal ways, now you, you throw a party for him that he comes home. And the father says, son, all that I have is already yours. Your brother was lost and now is found. So for that, we celebrate. And again, there needs to be that grace, that forgiveness in our life. There needs to be that brokenness of realizing who we are, like these women who are breaking their life, their alabaster flask, worshiping the Lord. And allowing that love to come into our life. And giving that love back to the Lord. That's what love's all about. It's worship. You know in the husband and wife marriage, that the word that's used for how a, a husband is supposed to treat his wife, it's close to the word worship. It's that adoration. And we have that love relationship with our Heavenly Father. There was a theologian named Karl Barth who once was asked, in all your studies, Karl, what was the most theological impacting statement that you've ever read in all of your reading? And Karl Barth, he said, the most theological and beautiful impacting statement in my life was Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That changes life. It's the simple things. Accepting, having that faith, believing that Jesus loves you. Wrapping up this chapter in verse 48. It says, then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see the Pharisees as they were sitting there, they were in their lifestyle, trying to relate to the Lord through their own works, their own holiness. And they were slaves to the law. But Jesus shows this woman grace. And he reverses everything that this Pharisee has ever known when it comes to how to relate to God. 
That's now directly through Jesus. It's now openly receiving that love from Jesus and worshiping him, responding to Jesus's goodness. You see, we realize in this text that Jesus forgives us of our sins. He tells the woman, you've been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. And I love how at the very end in verse 50, it says your faith has saved you. She came to Jesus as a sinner and she's claimed forgiven. She didn't go to the church and get her life cleaned up and then was, was saved. No, she went to Jesus as a sinner and Jesus saved her. And it was all by faith, not by works. Ephesians 2.8, we know this verse. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that saving grace, it's for us today. You see, the Lord does call us to worship him. There has to be that genuine relationship. So in our lives, in the season that you're in today, I could always encourage a person to be in a state of worship for the Lord as this woman was. Whether you're being blessed, whether you're going through trials, if you're far away from the Lord, if you've forgotten his voice, begin to worship him and just see how the Holy Spirit begins to move in your life and fill you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, to thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We ask, Father, for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that you would, Lord God, teach us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that Father, if there's someone who who desires, Lord God, that they want to be in that relationship with you that's not based on works, but they want to accept that free forgiveness, Lord. That's you this morning. Just, Just raise your hand. All right. Father, I pray for those, Lord, who've raised their hand, Lord. I pray and I ask, Lord God, that you would, Father, give them that grace, that they would accept it, Lord, fully and completely, not allowing judgment and condemnation, Father, to lead them to sin. But I pray, Father, that you would give them that relationship based on grace, on faith, And Lord God, that you would just fill them with your Holy Spirit to move forward in their life, Lord God. Give them discernment, give them direction. We love you, Lord. And our Father, I just lift up redeemed church to you, Father. Give us strength, give us faith, give us discernment. And we thank you, Father. We worship you for who you are. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Uh, next Sunday. Uh, just know that we're praying for you guys. If you tune in online, go ahead and you know, get a hold of us, message us, leave a prayer request. You guys can do that. But let's sing this one last song before we end. I once was dead in sin. Alone and hopeless oh, oh, oh. A child of wrath I walked Condemned in darkness oh, oh, oh. But your mercy brought new life And in your loving kindness Raised me up with Christ And reigned me